Welcome to Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kelly, and we're doing something a little different this week. We're going to be talking all about season one of The White Lotus on HBO. Uh, We haven't really talked about television or pop culture all that much, but it really is a great way to stay current, I think, with our listenership. And Dr. McCallan and I have noted, like, just about every single one of our friends have watched season one and season two of White Lotus. Everyone's talking about it, and it brings up some really interesting themes about society and about men in general. I think one of the areas that it maps so well to what we usually talk about is it kind of feels like a book. There's so many literary elements to it. The characters are deep and complex. There's themes that are seldom tackled in television. The dialogue is inspired. In some ways, it's almost more like a stage play, the kind of dialogue that you get in that that's more about metaphor than it is about perhaps the most realistic kind of conversations that people have. But it's something that is extremely of our time, Mm -hmm. the sort of eat the rich mentality that's sort of tearing through pop culture at the moment. And I think we're going to be seeing that in books, maybe a little bit further down the line. But right now we're getting this fast reaction, what can be pushed to streaming services very quickly and with a faster turnaround time. And lo and behold, we have The White Lotus. Yeah, so season one as written and created by Mike White. Mike White, you and I might have seen his first movie together, although I think I saw it alone at a little place called the Southwick Art Cinema in Toledo, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Chuck and Buck. Did you see that movie with me when we were there? I've never seen that movie. Okay. So it was a little just art house indie film, definitely LGBTQ focused. Certainly, I think in terms of the early 2000s art cinema parlance of the day, I would Mm -hmm. say better than Henry Fool. Maybe not quite as good as Ned Rifle. Maybe in a Faye Grimm kind of space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. Sure, sure. So uh, this was intended to just be a one-off series. Obviously, we know we got season two because season one was so successful. But I really thought, for me, it was an interesting exploration of privilege that didn't feel like we were being condescended to. It didn't feel like it was taking its audience's intelligence for granted on the issue. I thought it brought up some really interesting, valid points about privilege that was refreshing to see where it really is a topic that has been so inundated with dry narratives. This made it an interesting, engaging way to kind of tackle such a serious subject. Although I will admit, it took me two, maybe three tries just to make it through the first episode of the show. Like, I found the cringeworthy nature of the writing very difficult. I typically don't like shows like that. And there was such a gap between me having watched the first episode and then watching the other five episodes that I had forgotten that there was a murder. (laughs) Which is like at the very beginning of the show. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So, anyhow, before we go any deeper, I think it warrants saying... This is going to be all spoilers because we honestly can't talk about the show without talking about how it ends because really what you're looking at is six episodes build up and then the payoff at the end. While there are some reveals along the way, really the bulk of the message of the show doesn't become apparent until maybe the fifth episode, definitely the sixth. Yeah, it's a murder mystery. You don't actually know who the victim is until the very last episode. And it really wasn't all about the murder to begin with. No, no, which is yeah. why I forgot that there was a murder. <laughs> like, I know some people have definitely read it much more in the context of a murder mystery. But for me, it was just like, it's just following a bunch of a- 
rolls around. So. Yeah, it's easy to see why the show is so successful because it, the scenery is beautiful. Filmed and located in Hawaii. I believe Kauai. I think listeners of this podcast will know I do a lot of work on the Big Island. I'm not saying I'm an expert on Hawaiian culture, but Hawaii is a very interesting dichotomy where a lot of native Hawaiians don't even view themselves as a state. They still wish they were their own independent country, and indeed the argument could be made that they still should be, and that it is kind of a bit of a colonizer mentality that the rest of America has had towards the islands of Hawaii for quite some time. So that narrative of privilege and colonizer mentality is already built into Hawaii as a setting. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated how Mike White kind of let that unfold on its own. We have multiple examples of like straight-up exploitation of the native Hawaiian citizens we have in the first episode the woman who's giving birth who clearly is not in a position to be taking the kind of orders and demands of the the people around and then we have straight up exploitation of sort of the side piece boyfriend Mm -hmm. if we want to call him that who is lured into this theft scheme that is idiotic and sees it as an escape in order to try and attack the colonizers, but indeed ends up being his downfall. And speaking of colonization and appropriation, we're drinking fine tiki cocktails this evening. Tiki, a culture that never existed to begin with, so you can't really steal from it. And is much appreciated here on Literary Guys. <laughs> we, we do love some tiki. I think just for the sake of structure, I think we're probably going to end up talking about some central male figures in season one. Obviously, Armand, who I know you have a great deal of affection for. Mm-hmm. Certainly the character of Shane, along with his wife, Rachel. And then maybe wrapping it up, talking about a, a character I don't feel I got a lot of attention in season one, but Quinn, who's the youngest son of the main family visiting the White Lotus. Indeed. So let's just jump right in here with Armand. Wonderful character, deeply flawed, deeply entertaining to watch. Yeah. Uh, Murray Bartlett's performance is shockingly good. There's so much humanity in a character that I think could have been written off as caricature in some ways. Sure. Particularly in the latter episodes. We have someone who is at the end of his rope. When we first meet him, he can't take it anymore. He yeah. is yeah. he's sort of the Howard Beale, if you want to make a network oh, nice, reference nice. here, of the White Lotus. That he is mad as hell. He can't take it anymore. He's been sober for years, but that quickly unravels due to the pressure of the job that he he's just goes in. straight into special K. He's not even dipping his toe back into the unsober world. No, in fact I think he says like when he goes off the wagon, yeah. he, he goes hard and sadly it ultimately is his downfall that he loses control of himself and ends up being the victim in the end after some not-so-gracious behavior towards one of the guests. Not to say that they didn't necessarily deserve it. We'll get to him in a minute. But the thing that I loved about Armand is that he actually was good at his job. Mm -hmm. He had spent so many years taking care of these privileged you know, American, I think the show doesn't go out of its way to avoid painting Caucasian white culture as the target here. He'd become so good at it that even when he was just stoned out of his mind on a litany of drugs that he still delivered the best dinner service of his life. And he genuinely did want to be great at his job. And the fact that the demands simply were so high that it was an inhuman task in order to put up with the unrealistic and 
persnickety people who were staying at the hotel. And I know, and I'll give you a segue here, but he also is not without his flaws of his own privilege. Yeah, with any good writer, which I think Mike White has clearly demonstrated himself to be, every character has nuance. There's not someone who's just a villain. There's not someone whose only personality trait is being an a-hole. People are complex beings, and we can sympathize with the person and hate their behavior all in the same breath. And I think Armand is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. You're right. He put together the best fucking dinner service of his life. Mm -hmm. No question about it. And I will fight anyone who says differently. There was a lot of flair with those menus. Oh, man. But at the same time, unquestionably, he did double book the pineapple suite. Mm -hmm. And he was clearly way outside the bounds of decent behavior with the staff who he worked with. Yeah. You know, in that vein of contrast, right? He is put upon by all of these privileged, rich people attending this resort. Anyone who's been in the service industry knows what a soul-sucking experience that can be. To just put on a stiff upper lip and suck it up when someone's berating you about some trivial matter that in any other society than a first world country wouldn't even matter. That wouldn't even be a discussion point. It can be grating. It can really drain you. So on one hand, he's a very sympathetic character because he's putting up with that on a daily basis, often with a smile on his face. Mm -hmm. But then you turn it around and how he treats the staff is abhorrent. Both, you know, the woman of color who's going into labor that you mentioned earlier. I also noted when he was targeting the younger staff for some of his sexual dalliances, Mm -hmm. it was only white young men he was going for. You know, there was very clearly a racial dynamic and who he was attracted to and who he was going to use his power and privilege to kind of lord over. Mm -hmm. So I think if it had just been the performance of Murray Bartlett as Armand, I think it's enough reason to recommend watching the show. Yeah. Because there's so much nuance there. The writing's great. The performance is great. The mustache The mustache game is incredible. Spoiler alert for season two, the mustache game continues. (laughs) It does. Oh, it does. So Armand, though, gave me someone who I could connect with in this narrative. We'll talk about Quinn here at the end, but I think if Armand hadn't been there, I would have had no one to root for. Mm -hmm. And yes, Armand does some terrible things, but I also kind of wanted him to be happy and to find his way. Whereas there were a lot of characters on the show who I was just like, I honestly don't care. Like, they're just going to go off and continue having a miserable life, and I honestly just don't care. Which brings us to Shane. Yes, Shane. Shane, who is a character who, the way you just described Armand is kind of how I would describe Shane. The actor that they cast in the role of Shane has a punchable face. There's no other way around it. (laughs) That's just that kind of smug, you know, Ivy League, polo-wearing, East Coast affluence that just grates me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's certainly en vogue to be disparaging of those types. And Shane plays that to a T. You know, in terms of what he prioritizes, how he treats the staff, his sense of entitlement. But it's not a one-note character because you start to peel back the layers of Shane. And as misguided as he is, as tone-deaf as he is to his own wife's needs, as subservient as he is to his mom and the wealth and power that she provides for him, all of his flaws aside, at the end of the day, he was right. 
he did book the pineapple suite, mm-hmm. and he was completely being gaslit by Armand the entire time, mm-hmm. which anybody would feel infuriated by. We probably all handle it differently than Shane, but his sense of justice wasn't incorrect there. And as old school as his idea of what a wife should be is, in his own world, he was looking out for his wife's best interest, so he thought. I don't agree with that. You know, if your wife tells you she wants to have a job and wants to have some independence, that's a beautiful thing. My wife and I talk about that all the time and how we are equals in the matter. But I don't think that he is an entirely unsympathetic character because I think the catalyst of this entire quote-unquote murder that happens begins with Shane being right. Mm -hmm. And his interests, while completely misguided and completely tone deaf, aren't immoral. They aren't him being an a-hole just to be an a-hole. He really is, in his own world, looking out for his wife, looking out for his family, trying to be the best man he can be, as misguided as he is. If we look at the relationship, the marriage here, that he got what he was looking for. He had very much an idea of the kind of woman who he wanted to marry, which was based very much on looks and wanting someone intelligent for whom he could lord over. And she's the one who didn't do her homework. Right. In a very interesting way. She's the one who's surprised. Mm -hmm. While I think she is right and that she realizes that she made a tremendous mistake, although one that, assuming the interpretation of it is correct, that she does not ultimately back out of, that... He has no one telling him that he should be any different or giving him a compelling case why he should change. He's been led into this privileged world by his mother where there's no incentivization to mm-hmm. actually be more caring or to be empathetic or pretty much anything. Like, it's very strange. And yes, I can see how what Armand did to him would cause him to be even less receptive. I specifically look at the incident with putting them on a boat with Jennifer Coolidge. (laughs) Which Jennifer Coolidge features on many boats in both seasons. Who wouldn't want to be on a boat with Jennifer Coolidge? That would be a delight. I like that Jennifer Coolidge admits that she knows she's going to be very drunk. (laughs) (laughs) So good. So Shane, he definitely fills a role. He is a plot device in many ways, and I've met plenty of people just like him. You met plenty of plot devices in your day? <laughs> no, I, I, people who have that sense of privilege. Yeah, but I also like the idea of just calling those people plot devices now. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can. You know, would, would I want to spend any amount of time with Shane in real life? No, I would much rather sit down and have a drunken conversation with Armand. Mm -hmm. That said, I do appreciate that Shane was not written as a caricature. He is a person that that golden handcuff syndrome that Shane and Quinn both experience. I think there's some empathy that I can have for somebody like that. He's not going to give away his wealth. He's not going to give away his sense of privilege because that's all he's ever known. And it's a lot for us to expect that he could just adapt like that on his honeymoon when his wife suddenly says, oh, by the way, surprise, I'm also a person with agency. It's such an interesting nuanced take on a character who I would normally just write off, like you said, as a plot device, as somebody who I wouldn't want to spend any time with. And I still feel the same way at the end of the day, but I'm glad I got to know Shane a little bit better. I think Shane highlights just sort of this general feeling that I have. It isn't necessarily about privilege. It's just more about the world in which we live in today, which is that there seem to be a lot of folks who just don't listen. Mm -hmm. 
And a fault that you can really point out with Shane is that so much of what gets said to him goes in one ear and out the other. It's not that people aren't telling him exactly what is going on around him. Sure. He just doesn't listen. And I look at that these days as pretty much a condition of anyone who I want to spend time with. Like, are they willing to at least listen to what is going on, even if it's an opinion that they don't particularly like? Because otherwise, we'll never figure out when we ourselves are wrong, or we should rethink things, or maybe soften our view on things. And Shane does none of that. And for a season that is very much about wealth and privilege, you need Shane. Mm -hmm. He needs to be that person that represents kind of, as you say, old school privilege, because it's something which is not going away. I wish it would, but it's still there. But he's an interesting contrast as we start to move to the Quinn part of the conversation here. Quinn's mother, Nicole, who is some sort of entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. it's kind of vague as to what it is she (laughs) actually does, but she, in my mind, represents new school privilege. Mm. And there is a moment that actually was one of the things that just sold me on the show, because she is a very unsympathetic character, that... She is sort of the female version of Shane in the way in which she berates her husband and made for what appeared to be a rather toxic relationship. He ended up cheating on her because he just couldn't stand the fact that he had somewhat been rejected from the relationship. There's no sexual energy between them for the bulk of the show. Only rekindles that sexual energy by essentially getting assaulted in what she deems as at least a vaguely manly way. Yes, There is a moment where Nicole, the mother, talks about how difficult that she thinks it is for Quinn. This young man, I don't know, maybe like 15? I think Quinn's 16. Who is addicted to video games, doesn't really have any friends, doesn't have an identity, and is representative of sort of this lost generation. And he's picked on by his sister and his sister's friend relentlessly throughout the show. And the mother comes to the defense and says, I don't think you understand how hard it is for your brother. Like, to grow up in a world where, you know, sort of the seeming privilege of white male culture has been lessened. And what role does he have? You know, I don't necessarily agree with her, Mm -hmm. but... It's a really interesting point, and it actually has some empathy of, like, how should we think about people like Quinn? Yeah, you know, Quinn has that, as I said earlier, that kind of golden handcuff syndrome where his entire life is spent looking at screens, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the materialism and that escapism that his privilege provides. And there's this interesting narrative arc that we get with Quinn where because he's trying to escape the bullying of his sister and the closet that he's literally locked in (laughs) in his family's suite, ends up spending nights on the beach and is introduced to a bunch of native Hawaiian guys Mm -hmm. who, you know, on the surface are experiencing life in a much more visceral and organic way. They're getting out at six in the morning, they're rowing around the island, they're practicing more traditional beliefs and connecting with nature. And 
yes, the white person going to a native island and connecting with the cultural beliefs of another culture is very much a fetishization and problematic in its own right. But there's something beautiful at the same time about Quinn seeing the world for the first time through his own eyes, or at least through the eyes of somebody else and not the eyes of a screen. When I realized what was going on with Quinn's character, which is maybe somewhere in the third or the fourth episode, I really started to root for him. Yeah. Like... I wanted to see somebody get out of the trap. I agree there's a lot about Quinn which is unrealistic, and I think it, to think of it as fetishization as well is another lens that makes a lot of sense. But here's somebody who had no identity and really was given no path. I think that this is part of what we're going to be talking about also with some of the other media that's come out this year as far as looking at men and where education, other themes where men and boys are struggling. Like, there's no path that's clear anymore. Mm -hmm. And if there's no path in front of you, well, why not retreat into screens? It's safe. There's a comfort in those trappings. I find it amusing that the sister and her friend are obsessed with the fact that they think that he's looking at pornography all the time. But it doesn't appear to be the case, maybe occasionally, but like he actually has retreated into these game worlds and that's where he has his identity. Well, in the same way that they've kind of retreated into their woke literature, you know, they're constantly reading different self-help books. Mm -hmm. That's what I think I appreciated so much about this season and season two is that in so much, especially of the modern streaming services, you get this character that is the right, just, moral character character and everything they say and do is right and they just have this very impressive open world view and then everyone else is kind of an impediment toward that wokeness and that's just not realistic we're all flawed people we all at times don't listen to one another we all are entrenched in our own unconscious biases it's everyone on earth no matter where you're coming from and that's what's so great about watching the white lotus is that every character is flawed and maybe more mm-hmm. flawed than we are, which makes for entertaining television. But they also have these elements of sympathy and these small moments where you can root for them or at least put yourself in their shoes that I think really makes for great writing and great viewing. Obviously, and great discussion as well. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap things up then. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about season two in the coming months, give you guys a chance to catch up on that. I think mostly we're going to be talking about why we think season two is actually a sequel to The Talented Mr. Ripley. Because it is. It definitely is. Yeah. It is somehow more fabulous than the first episode. And it also involves both of our fascination with Italian prostitution. Centrales, you gotta love them. We'll get into that when we talk about White Lotus Season 2. Until then, I want to thank the Stardust Lounge here for branching out into making us some tiki cocktails tonight. There are a lot of pineapple fronds on this thing. I mean, literally, I can barely get to the drink. But it feels authentic. The White Lotus would serve this. And, you know, I think having the pineapple fronds here on the table really does reinforce the great takeaway from Season 1 in that the pineapple suite was double booked. It It just was. was. It was. Just give them a refund. Do something. I don't know. Although the view from the presidential suite was better from what I'm told. But it didn't have the same tub, right? Didn't have the same tub. Yeah. You know what? If Armand had just focused on his true art, the dinner service, none of this would have been a problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, we learned a lot from Armand about where to hide alcohol and drugs while one is working. So, Anyhow, until next time, this has been Literary Guys signing off.